Well, hello, my friends. It's John O'Leary, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. As you may have heard, we have started a new segment called Monday Moments. Feedback on it already has been unbelievably positive. The idea behind the Monday Moments is this, for me to share with you, our listeners, a burst of inspiration to start your week on fire, baby, on fire. Each week, we will be a little bit different than the one that preceded it. I may share a story from a Live Inspired community member. I may answer one of your questions, so send them in. Or I may share an update from a previous guest. To have our Monday Moment episodes automatically sent to you, subscribe to the Live Inspired podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you may be listening to your podcast. If you've had a past guest that you'd like to hear from again, share a story about how the Live Inspired podcast has changed your life, or simply just have a question that you'd like me to answer, feel free to email me at info at johnolearyinspires.com. I'm going to say it again because I want to receive your feedback, your questions, your, your advice. Here we go. Send me it at info at johnolearyinspires.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you joining us in the Live Inspired Movement. As you all know by now, we have always remarkable guests, and today is no exception. She's awesome. One of our favorite listeners, her name, Jennifer Truitt. That's a shout out to Jennifer. She recommended that we introduce you, our fellow listeners, to this incredible woman, Michelle Couchat. Michelle is an expert communicator, She's spoken internationally to a wide variety of audiences, including, write these ones down, they're big ones, Compassion International, Women of Faith, Ziegler Family, as well as numerous other corporate events, podcasts, radio shows, video mediums. She's all over the place. Michelle released her first book. It's a memoir titled Undone. Great title. Undone, a story of making peace with an unexpected life. And then her second book, it's a devotional written in the brutal months after her third round of cancer. It's titled, I Am a 60-Day Journey to Knowing Who You Are Because of Who He Is. Michelle and her husband, Troy, live in Colorado with their six kids. She enjoys a good novel, a long hike in the mountains, and a kitchen table filled with people. She also enjoys making sure that people realize they're not alone. And if you ask me, John, why are you bringing her onto your show today? And why are you sharing this message with the rest of us? Here's why. Two reasons. Number one, Michelle likes donuts. So let, let's just start there. I like a woman who is unafraid to reach for the baker's dozen and get after it. And Michelle will do it with the best of them. So I respect uh -huh. that about Michelle. Secondly, and the real reason, uh, she loves making sure people realize they're not alone. And in a society that is hyper-connected and we're looking down all the time, it means we're not looking up. It means we're really not connecting. And it means about half of us feel anxiety, about a third of us feel depression, and about half of us feel as if we have no one to really lean back into. 
Well, Michelle will remind you that, yes, indeed, you do, that you are not alone and that your best days remain in front of you. So without further Mm. ado, my friends, I invite you to buckle up. Open up your hearts and your journals Mm. and your minds as we bring on my newest friend, Michelle Cushat. Michelle, welcome to Live Inspired. Oh, thank you, John. Wow. Can you call me at like 7 a.m. every day with that kind of interjection? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll call you tomorrow morning. We'll see if it goes over quite as well. But I, it, <laughs> thank it, you. I'm so happy to be here, truly. One of my colleagues, her name is Deanna Lester, heard you at Women of Faith. Several of my friends have heard you speak in other places. Several have read your books. And then, of course, many have said, you've got to have her on your podcast. So, uh, Oh, how sweet. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you on. You've got an amazing life story. And for those who have not heard you speak, they've not yet read your books, give us a snapshot of your life today. Okay, snapshot. Um, well, there's, there's 47 years. I'm 47 years old. But I would say that the first half of my life was fairly normal, fairly unpredictable, raised by two parents who have been married forever. Um, raised in a home that faith was very central. I went to college. I mean, this very typical kind of environment. And then I got into my 20s and slowly things started to fall apart. Um, I found myself uh, on the uh, other end of an unexpected divorce, being a single parent, trying to get my life back together and figure out what was next. Uh, and then I decided to do step family because that just sounded like it was just a whole lot of easy. <laughs> and then I realized that that wasn't quite the case. And then in the middle of all that, a blended family and teenage kids and all of that, uh, in 2010, when I was 39 years old, I was diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue. In other words, cancer of the tongue, which I didn't even know something like that existed. Uh, And so here I was, a young woman, I think 39, it's pretty young, and I'm faced with a cancer diagnosis that's in a very tender part of your body. And on top of that, I had made my living, my career, my living was made as a communicator. That was the, that was the kicker. Um, my, what I felt that I was wired up to do was communication. I was speaking, I was doing radio, I, I was writing books, all of this. And all of a sudden, the very thing that was necessary for communication was compromised. Uh, and what happened, that initial diagnosis, uh, I would find out after the fact, after the surgery and everything to remove it, that it was caught early, it was cancer caught early. The doctors told me, we got it all. You have nothing to worry about. And I put cancer in a nice, neat little box and never expected to see it again. And then three and a half years later, I got a second diagnosis, completely unexpected. It had come back more severe, more significant than before. Uh, This time, uh, it was not an easy surgery. It was about four or five hour surgery where they removed one third of my tongue. Oh my and it required about eight weeks of recovery, learning how to eat and drink again and talk again. However, uh, they were able to do a biological skin graft. So part of my tongue didn't really grow back, but it was able to um, be rehabilitated and I could speak again without anybody really being able to notice. And once again, we put cancer in a box and never expected to see it again. And so seven months later, it came back for a third time, very aggressive, very advanced. And they did not give me any guarantees at that point of a cure. So what they did at that point was give me two weeks to get my affairs in order. At that time, I was doing a leadership podcast with a gentleman by the name of Michael Hyatt. This is your life with Michael Hyatt. I was his co-host. I flew to Nashville, recorded a bunch of episodes with him. 
I went into a national studio and recorded my book on audio because I knew it would be the last time I would, it could be the last time I would ever speak again. And then I flew back home and went into the hospital for nine hour surgery where they removed two thirds of my tongue, Mm. removed uh, skin and blood vessels from my forearm, my left forearm, wrist to elbow. They took that and used that as a graft to rebuild my tongue. They also took out an incision about eight inches across my neck to take out lymph nodes in my submandibular gland and more blood vessels to try to rebuild my arm and then uh, and my tongue. And then they also took another graft out of my left leg and used all of these. Basically, I was Humpty Dumpty. They had all of these pieces and parts, and they were trying to uh, do their best to save my life and yet create some kind of body that was somewhat functional on the other side of that. After about a week in the hospital and about three weeks to recover, uh, they started chemotherapy and external radiation. And, uh, you know, for those of you who have experienced cancer, you know that cancer and its treatment uh, come in lots of flavors and varieties. Um, but I can tell you that when you do radiation on the face and the neck, it has a completely different impact than radiation does on other parts. So you just don't want to burn your face and your neck, as you know, John, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that process of radiation chemotherapy uh, took me to the very edge of life. Uh, after they finished those treatments, they put me in the hospital again, and they did something called brachytherapy. Brachytherapy is a procedure where they inject needles through your chin, up through your tongue, and then literally attach you to a radiation machine twice a day for a week and inject radiation directly into your body. By the time all was said and done, uh, my, my, my poor body had uh, burns from nose to chest, scars over every inch of my body, Except for right, my right leg. I told my husband, I said, there's nothing more sexy than a right leg. Well, you that's just true. You had that out. going for you. Yes. <laughs> and then I had a feeding tube and a tracheostomy, all those things. And uh, at one point, my vocal cords were so burned that I couldn't make a sound for a month or two. So, so we have multiple battles going on uh, with just my life. I wasn't sure I would live through it. But then on top of that, if I lived there was the very the right. real awareness that I would never be the same again. So let, let's slowly unwind some of what you've shared because it's so intense. I mean, it just it's punch after punch after intense. punch. Uh, going back to the, how about the third diagnosis of cancer? You, you've been treated once, brutal. You, get, you beat it. You've been treated now a second time. Yes, it's behind us. It's done. And then it comes back, and you said it comes back with a vengeance. What's it like when you find out? Uh, let's back up even a little farther. What's it like when you find out the very first time, Michelle? It's cancer. That, the first time you heard this, the c word. What is that like for you? It was terrifying. You know, you you sit there and you hear of other people experiencing some kind of life-threatening diagnosis, and and. Yeah, at least for me, I imagined that I'm a pretty tough cookie. I'm not exactly a lightweight. I can handle hard things. And I thought for sure, if something terrible happened, I would just handle it. You know, I'd just roll up my sleeve and we would deal with it. And then when it happens to you, you realize that you you really don't know how you're going to deal with that until you actually face it. And what happened for me is I instantly became paralyzed with fear. 
like could hardly function because of the fear of what if I die. Yeah. How old were your kids at that time? At the time, they were 13, 15, and 18. And when you are paralyzed by fear and you've been diagnosed with cancer, and this is something that many of us are going to face directly and all of us will face through loved ones and friends. Yeah. How, how do you begin counteracting that, that paralyzing fear? Oh my goodness. Uh, for me, I, I think for me initially, I was so surprised by my fear because I really thought that, yeah, I was a person who had faith. I was a person who worked hard. I thought I really could just muscle my way through it. But I had to acknowledge that there was this thing, this thing I was dealing with, this disease called cancer that I had no control over. And acknowledging my somewhat, some, my helplessness to do anything about that was a very hard but necessary step. Uh, in some measure, worry and fear lends us a sense of control. It makes us think that we can be in charge of it, but it's just a false promise. It does nothing to give us control. And so as I work through that fear. First of all, I had to say it out loud. I had to tell my husband, my friend, gosh, I'm afraid. And just admitting it. But at the same time, I couldn't ruminate on it. There's a fine balance between acknowledging the reality and ruminating on the reality. There is. You write about it in such a way where there's somehow you bring up humor in the midst of the storms. I remember in one part of your book, you wrote about like, my tongue and I, I've become incredibly attached to it. And I, I've grown very far, like, you know, you, you're looking I'm at- i fond of it. Yeah, you're losing, you're, you're losing two thirds of your tongue and you're kind of mocking it in a book. And I know it's tongue in cheek. You're saying it with great humor, but what, yeah. was humor a big part of your dance through the worry and the fear? Yes, it, it always has been. It has to be, uh, because the truth is, is I- I feel everything very deeply. So when something this significant and intense is going on, I feel it to my bones. And so using humor, whether it's just learning to laugh at the reality. I mean, out of all the parts of my body that would be affected by cancer, really? Really? You would think it would be able to donuts I ate, you know? The, yeah. uh, it would be something else, not my tongue. And so just finding some humor was a way to lighten the mood. I found myself gravitating toward people who knew how to laugh. I could not handle people who looked at me and immediately burst into tears hmm. uh, because I could barely control my own emotions. Um, but people who could laugh with me and could, you know, find that humor in the midst of the heart, those were safe for me. Michelle, w w many of us have friends who have been diagnosed with cancer. They're receiving treatments. How can we best support them? You know, I, I think many of us, well, we feel we feel awkward and we don't, we don't want to bring it up because we don't want them to be somehow reminded they have cancer as if somehow they've forgotten. <laughs> yeah, but what, exactly. How, how can we be a better friend? Well, the best way is just to not be afraid to enter in. I think we are so afraid of saying the wrong thing that we say nothing. And the funny thing about pain and suffering, any kind of pain and suffering, we all have it, is that pain and suffering has a way of making us feel other. We feel... Even if we're in a room full of pe people, our unique pain and suffering makes us feel somewhat like we're on the other side of the glass looking in, that we can no longer reach for the life that we once had. And so we feel very alone. Pain is very lonely. And so we need people who are willing to step in. But, you know, the challenge is, is uh, for those of us who are watching other people suffer, suffer, first of all, we're afraid to say the wrong thing. Second of all, 
to enter into to suffering with another person causes us to be uncomfortable too. And most of us don't like to be uncomfortable. We avoid pain at all costs. So if you really want to help someone who is going through something very extraordinarily hard, whether cancer or a different form of pain and suffering, you one, have to be willing to do it wrong. Hmm. You have to be willing to just step in and do it wrong. And two, you have to be willing to carry a measure of pain yourself. Well said. You write a lot about hope, and it seems to me you speak an awful lot about hope, and it's something that I would like the economy to trade a little bit more in. Why, why, why mm-hmm. do you think hope is so important? Uh, it's absolutely essential. It's what gives meaning to life. And, you know, sooner or later, all of us are going to encounter some circumstance that is bigger than we have the chops to handle. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take us down. It's going to overwhelm us. We're all going to deal with illness. Eventually, every one of us is going to have to face our mortality. That's a, that's a 100% fact for every single one of us. And so in, uh, in this human experience, as we walk through a life that is guaranteed to at times disappoint us, we need to know that there's meaning on the other side of pain. We have to know that our pain is not in vain, that the difficulties we encounter, the challenges are not going to be wasted. And that's why it's so essential to have hope. And that's why it's essential for those of us who have already engaged with some very hard things, that we continue to speak up with hope to prove that there is life on the other side of us, that the worst thing that can happen doesn't have to be the end of your life. You know, the amount of despair and intense anxiety and fear that is everywhere in the marketplace today, it it seems to me one of the ways to begin pushing that back is by sharing more hope. So how can we tap and mainline a little bit more hope into our own journeys? Well, it begins with each one of us taking responsibility for our own emotional health, right? There's a lot of voices out there that people have not done their own hard work of getting healthy, of wrestling with their questions and with their disappointments and with the things that have gone wrong with their own pain. And so you and I, and you've had to do this, I have no doubt, there's no way you could have come through what you went through without doing your own work to get to a place of of making peace with your story. But we need, each one of us has to be individually responsible for um, doing what needs to be done, whether it's a therapist, whether it's medication, whether it's a support group, whether it's whatever it may be. We have to do our own work to come to a place of health and peace with the story that we're living. And then when we get to that place where we are grounded in who we are, we're grounded in our reality and what we believe, then from that place of emotional, spiritual, physical health, we can reach out and connect with others. Mm. But without that, we have nothing to offer. You know, if, if you and I continue uh, to just be victims of our circumstances, we, we don't have a hand free to lend to anybody else. We're too busy trying to save ourselves. Talk about the question, why me? <laughs> the, mm. the, when you get cancer first time, maybe you can soldier through and then the second time. But at some point when it comes back and back and back, they're not sure about the future. And you may lose the ability to speak. You may lose the ability to live. You may lose the ability to mother your babies forward. Everything that's sacred to you may be ripped away. I am assuming during the dark hours of the soul that you occasionally stumbled into that the pity party, rightly so. Yes. Um, so Rightly so. Talk talk about that space for a little bit, and then eventually how you came through it. Yeah, why me is a is an is a valid question to ask, uh, especially when you have cumulative 
difficulties, things that pile on top of each other. I haven't even gone into uh, this story yet that eight months after my first cancer diagnosis, we received a phone call uh, about three children, twin four-year-olds and a five-year-old who uh, needed a family. Basically, they were living in a drug home filled with addiction, and someone called us and asked us if we would take them. And so in a 24-hour period, we went from being parents of three kids to being parents of six, three of whom were preschoolers who had a history of a severe abuse and neglect and trauma. So this why me question, as I then went through two more cancer diagnoses after that, not only did I need to wrestle with the why me question for myself, but I needed to learn how to wrestle with that because I had three children who would grow up needing to wrestle with that as well. So I'm going mean, to just pause you because I, I want to make sure we go through it almost like bullet by bullet. When you're dealing with three children, you got a busy life, you got, you know, life is happening and you're sick and you're dealing with cancer and you get that phone call. Uh, it seems to me you have every excuse in the world to say, you know what? I kind of have a few uh, pans on top of the, the, the grill right now. Why do you mm-hmm. say yes, Michelle? Why, why do you say yes to those oh, three kids? Well, let me tell you. So this is eight months after the first cancer diagnosis. And my and we were almost empty nesters, right? So my husband and I, after raising three boys through adolescence, we're almost at empty nest. My husband and I decided to give empty nest a new name. We called it the promised land because we thought, <laughs> Thank you, God. We are almost done parenting. So when that phone call came, there was an initial response to me that said, are you kidding me? You want me to? It was like finishing a marathon and being asked to go back to the beginning and run the whole 26 miles over again. And so there was a very real human part of me that said, "Uh, no way. No, thank you. I've done my, I've paid my dues. I've done my job. And then in the middle of that, and this is where my faith came into play, I really felt that, uh, you know, after having a cancer diagnosis, I knew what it felt like to wake up every day afraid. I knew what it was like to wake up every day unsure if I would live, unsure of whether or not I would eat or drink or be able to survive. And I was being asked if I would create a safe place for three children who also knew what it felt like to wake up every day afraid. And in that moment, I realized that uh, this cancer diagnosis didn't have to be just a cancer diagnosis. It could come become an opportunity for connection. Now, that said, it was not easy. <laughs> and it still isn't easy. Uh, it, we packed up our car 24 hours later, drove to another state uh, with borrowed car seats in our back, the back seat of our car, and picked up three preschoolers and brought them home. And those initial months and even those initial years were a massive adjustment. I, I did not fully understand how much early childhood trauma impacts the, the brain and the body Robert. and the mind and the heart of a child. And I got quite an education on how trauma impacts each one of us. How are your three little ones doing today. I know they've aged a little bit since then, but how, how are yes. they doing as part of your family? Uh, we're making great progress. They're now almost 12 and almost 13. So we have made a lot of progress, but you know, we've navigated a lot of hard things together. And so we daily have to work at uh, about making space for each other to deal with our pain. They have, they have their own PTSD and 
uh, emotional tenderness and reactiveness and triggers. I have my own PTSD and triggers and reactiveness for my trauma. And so learning how to have empathy and grace for each other without reacting to each other is an ongoing process. But the beautiful thing is, and I believe this with all of my heart, that wounds that happen in relationship are also healed in relationship. I mean, there's so much there. So we'll come back. The, uh, the idea of empathy and hope and grace and love in relationships and that you are growing in all these things to help us understand, because I think we live in such a conflicted marketplace, whether that's in partnerships or marriages or raising kids or politically, neighborly, whatever it is, there's so much conflict. How do you begin to grow in empathy and grace and love for your neighbor? Oh, goodness. Oh, by one decision at a time. It it starts by learning to ask questions and actually listen to their answers. Uh, When, for example, when my children are having a bad day dealing with some of the emotional fallout for their history, it's choosing to, rather than just discipline poor behavior, to pull up a chair with them and say, tell me what's going on inside of you right now. Tell me how you're feeling. I can see you're really upset. Help me understand how you feel today. And let's figure out how to do this together. It's precisely what I needed as I wrestled through some of my own questions about God and faith and healing and cancer and all of that. I needed people who weren't going to try to fix me. I needed friends who were more committed to simply being with me. Mm-hmm just holding space with me as I wrestled through all of those big questions. There are questions we all wrestle with as you, uh, as you wrestled with them, what, what answers were you beginning to come upon? Well, and this kind of ties back to your why me question as we were talking about that. Uh, I, that was one of the big ones, the why me, what I needed to do is I, part of my progress or my, uh, finding measure of healing was starting to see, the world outside my narrow perspective. So I was looking at my life and all the things I had lost. I had lost my ability to speak perfectly. I had lost my ability to taste. I only have about 20% of my taste left. Mm -hmm. I had lost my ability to eat and drink and all of that without choking and all these complications I deal with on a regular basis. And I was so focused on all I had lost, I was just looking very narrowly. And so one of the things I did is start following the stories of people around the globe outside of the American culture. And I started to realize that uh, for the most part, Americans, Western civilization, we are unique in that we wake up every day with the expectation of comfort. (laughs) You and I wake up every day feeling somewhat entitled to a good life. And so I started spending time with people that were from West Africa or from Haiti or from South Africa, different places I traveled to, and realizing that many of them actually expect life to be hard. And they recognize that this life and that perspective shift, then they didn't feel cheated when something bad happened. They actually when something good happened, they felt like they had received an extravagant gift. And so they celebrated. They were full of joy. And so I had to, you know, very simply, I had to change my perspective that, um, that suffering and pain and hardship is a part of life. 
but there is a lot of good too. And that I didn't need to just wait for the hard things to be over. I just needed to learn to embrace what was, even the hard things, and look for the good in the middle of what is. Well, I think the the challenge that we all face, regardless of what part of the globe we live in, is the the gap between what we expect and what we have. And when yeah. when they don't match up, we get mad about it. And uh, what would you say to our listeners who are living in that gap right now? They they expected one thing in their marriage and they find themselves single. They expected one thing in their their health and they find themselves diagnosed with cancer. And on and on and on. We we all have unwanted mm-hmm. diagnosis and feel a little bit undone in our lives. So w- what encouragement might you offer us? Well, to begin with. Uh, denying your reality isn't going to help. So to begin with, you just have to acknowledge what is. And there's real grief in that. There is nothing wrong with grieving what you lost. And so I had to sit down. I opened up a journal. And I made a list of all the things that I had lost. And it was quite a list, John, let me tell you. I could fill up several pages of things that I would never be able to do again, dreams that wouldn't come true, things that I had lost as a direct result of my experiences, the different losses that I had had. And quite simply, I opened those two journal pages that were filled with multiple lines and just let myself weep over it. I had to just let myself grieve it. These were losses and they were worth grieving over. and sometimes I think we try to, too hard to slap a happy face on the hard circumstances. Right. And I don't think that's honest. Uh, it was not honest. And the more that I tried to appear to be a woman who was strong and full of faith, the worse I felt on the inside. In fact, I got to the point where I really, truly did despair of life. And I realized that these losses... I would never be able to make peace with them until I grieved them. And that was my very first step. I had to grieve them first. And then once I grieved them, once I made that list and let myself weep, then I made a separate list. Okay. And I couldn't make the second list until I made the first one. The second list is what unique opportunities do I have now as a direct result of the losses? What unique opportunities, unique um, perspectives do I have that I could not have if I hadn't gone through what I went through? And what surprised me, John, is that that list was almost as long. Hmm. So my um, my dad got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. You know, it's a, he's still alive. He's still well, but physically he's he's not well. But spiritually and just emotionally, he is on fire. He's a great guy. But at one point I said, Dad, why, why don't you ever get mad about Parkinson's? And he's, he said, how, how could I when I have so much to be grateful for? And I, I said, Dad, can you give me three things you're grateful for? And he did. He uh, he talked about all the three different things, including number three, uh, for your mother, my wife. And he talked about how other people Aww. are kind of stepping away, but she keeps stepping closer. And then I'm getting ready to give him a hug. And he goes, I'm not done yet, John. And he gave me four, and then he gave me five, then he gave me six and seven. He had made this list like you of all the things that he had received because of Parkinson's disease. And and most of us make that list subconsciously or on a piece of paper of things we've lost due to tongue cancer or anything else. And we very Uh seldom come back to that journal after grieving and saying, okay, I get it. So what have I received because of it? And I'm, I'm amazed to hear that list from you. So I'm just curious, as you look back on it, what, what items were on your list? What, what were the gifts that you received? 
when I travel and speak now at different conferences, at almost every single event I go to, somebody with a disability will come up to me and tell me, thank you for not stopping speaking. And, hmm. um, you know, I've, I've had people come up to me and let me know how annoying my voice is because I speak <laughs> with a list. I've heard, you know, there's always those people out there, right? Yeah, great and people. Yes, really great. I delete those comments, but go keep sending them my way, guys. I I really respect them. Uh, Delete, delete, delete. Yes, Uh, but there's a very real, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm human. At the end of the day, like we are, and there is, there has been, as I've learned to get used to this new body, some measure of embarrassment or shame that I feel at times that when I'm speaking, I spit all over the stage. Yeah. I, I can't help it, but I spit everywhere. There's certain words I can't say. And my temptation has always been to hide, you know, to kind of pull back and, and to not, cause I felt that embarrassment, but I, I didn't want, I didn't want shame to shut me up. And so I kept showing up and I kept speaking and at every event, there's at least one disabled person, a wide variety of disabilities, and they come up to me and they say, my choice to keep speaking, even though I can't speak perfect, gives them courage to do things that they didn't think they could do. And that, oh my gosh, that right there, uh, that makes, That's fuel. as much as I, as I it, yes, it's fuel. As much as I don't really relish the thought of going through those hard things again, I wouldn't change a thing. I would have never had the opportunity to connect with people who have disabilities if it hadn't been for my experience. Uh, I also think of the parents. I, I get letters and emails and messages from parents all the time that are either in complex families with blended family, step families, or parents who are raising kids from trauma, lots of adoptive foster families. And the fact that I... I'm very careful with what I share publicly about right. my kids, but the fact that I'm not afraid to say our family isn't perfect hmm. helps these other families know you can stick it out. You can stick together. It doesn't have to be perfect to be good. It can still be good if it's not everything you dreamed it would be. Michelle, you bring up so many topics that either we need to do a six-hour podcast or I need to get even more focused on the questions that I'm asking you because <laughs> there's – I mean, we could talk about fostering or mixed marriages or losing a marriage or getting cancer or self-esteem, which is I think where I want to take it next. The, the question – By the way, that right there, what you mentioned, all of those different things, that's part of the – that's the gain that, I, that has come from my losses too. There are – in every audience, I can connect with almost every person in the room because of the vast experience of right. a variety of different types of pain. That's a gift too. It, it's a grand gift, a painful one to embrace. But once you do, it's redeemed. So you, you yeah. have – and the esteem that you show when you're on stage doing the very best you can with what you have, and I think you have a gift – uh, but it's not easy. And you have scars literally on your body. You certainly have scars in yes. your heart. How do you, as um, as an adult, as a lady, as a leader in life, handle the scars and the struggle with self-esteem showing up? Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Somebody asked me not too long ago, what's the hardest thing in my life right now? And uh, I, I answered them. I'm like, do you really want to know? Before I tell you my answer, do you really want to know? He says, yes, I really want to know. And I said, the hardest thing is the choice I make every single day to wake up and live. <laughs> not to just get by, not to just try to 
to survive until I die, but to actually get up and live. And that means showing up. That means even though my it hurts, my body hurts every single day. I, you, I'm guessing, John, that you know what this is like. When you have scarring from radiation, um, breathing, talking, swallowing, eating, everything hurts all the time. Talking hurts. And yet every day I have to decide, am I going to wake up and live or am I going to give up? Uh, and so some of the things I've had to do to continually make that choice to get up and live is I have a great therapist. <laughs> I have a fabulous therapist that I have gone to for a decade and I tell her the truth. I've made the decision that I'm not going to hide. I'm going to tell her the truth. That means when I'm having seasons where I'm struggling with the will to live, I lay it out before her and she and I work through it together. The other thing I do in order to make this choice to live every single day is my faith matters to me. Uh, you cannot wrestle with dying at 39 and not face the questions about what happens after you die. Right. And I had to get back to the beginning. What do I believe about what happens after I die? And let me tell you, just nice church cliches weren't enough for me. I had to wrestle with that. What do I believe happens after I die? Do I believe there is a God? Do I believe he's real? What do I believe about his character? And what do I believe about his personal attention for me? And if he cares and wrestling with that and simultaneously with the presence of physical suffering is not easy. But if I was going to wake up every day and choose to live, I had to go there. I had to make that a priority. And the other piece uh, that's been very helpful for me in walking this out one day at a time, um, by the way, I'm sure you've heard people assume that just because you look fine, that everything's fine and your body works 100% perfectly. And I'm having to educate people on a regular day that every day is hard. <laughs> but the other thing is choosing to do life in relationship. Yes. Uh, you and I can endure just about anything as long as we know we're not alone. That seems like a huge part moment, of your your story is how little you've done by yourself. And that's not a knock. It's actually high praise. You, you, you mentioned the counselor a moment ago, a decade worth of investment in this person. But you've been yes. invested in people and they've been invested in you for the entire journey. And it seems to me yes. really the core of your work actually is about not doing yes. life by yourself. I think it's the secret, quite frankly. And it has to be deeper than just our social media connections. We have to enter in deeply with the people around us. I, I believe we are wired up for connection. And in fact, you can, don't take my word for it, go out there and research uh, any kind of human trauma, read books like The Body Keeps the Score by um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk or Daniel Siegel's books or any of them would tell you uh, the secret to healing from any kind of trauma is the presence of at least one stable, significant other. Mm. In other words, we don't heal in isolation. None of us heal in isolation. And you know this with your story of Jack Buck entering in and the other people that entered in with you. We heal in community. Uh, and that is kind of what I feel like my whole life's purpose is yeah. about, is to create spaces for all of us to wrestle with um, the complexity of real relationships, real faith, and real life, and to have conversations about it. 
you know, just to sit and, and just to do it together. We don't have to have the answers, but we can create space to do it with one another. Michelle, I'm, I'm frequently asked a question that I, I think kind of is hollow, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it of you. So here we go. People ask me all the time, John, if you had not been burned, what would your life look like? So my question to you is, Miss Michelle, if you had not been burned with cancer again and again and again and radically changed by it, what, what do you think your life would look like? Do you ever play that game? Yeah, I do. Well, I can tell you what I was before it happened, and I'm guessing I would have stayed in the same course. I would have been a type A high-achieving, independent, self-sufficient woman that was a little bit judgmental of everybody around her. <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't, that doesn't sound very complimentary, but I was a high-driven, I wasn't a bad person, but I thought that I could do anything I put my mind to and I could do it alone and that, you know, I if I worked hard enough, I could be perfect enough and I could... I could do everything with near perfection if I worked hard enough. And what I had to discover is at the end of the day, I'm human, just like everybody else's. I am fallible and mortal, just like everybody else's. Uh, and I need help. I need support, just like everybody else does. And this, that, I just know that if I hadn't learned, if I hadn't learned about grace and mercy, and humility and the presence, the necessary presence of other people. Uh, I, I would have been just more, I think I would have been more and more difficult to live with all the time. <laughs> and well, so from on that behalf of Troy, let me, let me thank you for discovery. <laughs> hey, and by the way, you're not allowed to send this clip to him. So <laughs> it's just between us. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, and I have a feeling we could spend a whole hour on Troy. He, he also sounds and reads like an amazing guy. He is. He's a good, good man. I mean, what I say is not, both of us are our own match. You know, we're both just human people, but All he's right. a good man. He's a good man. He shows up every day for our family. Michelle, for those listening right now thinking, you know what? Uh, she's been through a lot, but let's face it. She has a husband. She's got Michael Hyatt. She's got a big following. She's got six kids. She's got people. Uh, I don't have anybody. I don't have a single close relationship that I can actually lean into and trust. For those of us who might be over there right now, how, how do we even begin to expand our circle and lean into someone when there is no one? A couple things. First of all, uh, if you really are that isolated and have no one, then I would do everything you could to find a counselor, a pastor, someone who is in that space of, of helping you get to a place of health and wholeness, emotional health and wholeness. There are people all over in every town that do that kind of work and would be honored to come alongside of you. But the second thing is, is if you have no one, for every one of you out there that feels completely alone and have no one, there's another hundred that feel exactly the same. Uh, you could go to a hospital, a nursing home, a high school, a college campus, an AA meeting, and you will find people who, who would love to have you step in and do life with them. Uh, they're everywhere. Walk down the street. I mean, I, I have made it a personal goal that I try everywhere I go, whether I'm walking on the sidewalk or at the grocery store or wherever, that I look people in the eye and smile at them <laughs> and say something. It is, I do this too, and it's that, amazing how frequently they look back at you amazing. like you're crazy. Yes, it's true. <laughs> right. But that, 
it confirms what I'm saying, that there are people out there that just, they need somebody to reach out and connect to them. So if you feel alone, why not start, why not be part of a movement to connect, not isolate? So begin the movement step-by-step step to connect rather than isolate. When, yeah, when, move toward someone. Find somebody, move towards them. Michelle, what, what's one thing that you would do every day that just brings life into your into your soul, into your being, and into the way you show up? Well, I mean, quite frankly, and once again, I would go back to my faith. And for those of you who don't have any faith context, that's totally fair. I get this, but for me, it's everything to me. Every morning I get up about 5, 5.15, I have a chair in my office with a tiny little lamp that I turn on and I sit in my chair and rather than try to come up with some fancy prayer, I just open myself up and pray to the God that I believe in and just sit and believe that he is sitting there with me. And quite frankly, that is what anchors me. And I live every day not knowing if cancer is going to come back. That's my reality. Uh, and so I every day need to be reminded that I do believe there is life after that. And I do believe that there is a God who is good and he loves me. And I need to sit in that place every day and remind myself of that reality, allow him to remind myself of that reality. And that gives me the strength to enter a day that could be full of fear, right? It could mm -hmm. totally be full of fear, but it gives me a different context uh, that no matter what happens today, as far as I'm concerned, it can only get better from here. <laughs> Michelle, you mentioned earlier that you made a journal list of all the things that were robbed and ripped away from you. And then you made a second sheet of all the things that you've been given and graced because of it. it looking uh -huh. back now at your life, what, what is the best thing that has come from your your triple cancer rounds? What What, what is mm. the, like, gosh, John, out of all that I've learned, this is the most important to me so far. Uh, true compassion, uh, compassion for myself, self-compassion. That's been a really big gift. I've, I've long had a pretty negative self narrative. You can imagine a type A person. We're not mm -hmm. just critical of everybody else, but we're highly critical of ourselves. And so learning to allow myself to take the role of a student that, uh, I just wrote a blog post this week where I said, rather than telling myself that I'm failing, I tell myself I'm learning. I'm learning. And that self-compassion has been huge, but it's also the compassion for others. I know I am doing the best that I can. And the best that I can some days is not very pretty, but it is the best I can. But then I, I now look at the just beautiful variety of humans around me, men and women and children. And uh, I just, I know I'm able to look at those, even those that are behaving poorly most days, and tell myself they're doing the best that they can. That's right. And I have no idea what hard thing that they're dealing with. I may not be able to see it, but I'm guessing it's there. And man, that compassion is so freeing. It's been so freeing for me to live with compassion rather than constant disappointment. So I have another dear friend of mine who lives in your same city, in your same state, and she mentioned that the way she was able to forgive someone who did something terrible to their family was not through forgiveness, but through compassion. And I, I never actually considered yeah. forgiveness through that lens, but the idea of just having yeah. a compassionate heart, like understanding that, that every one of us shows up doing the best we can at that time. And sometimes that's pretty yeah. poor, but it is the best we can at that time. Mm -hmm. So Michelle, mm -hmm. all, all of our guests on the Live Inspired podcast have been asked and they're tethered together through these seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. 
And we're honored to have you on the show. So the first question is, what is the best book you've ever read? Oh, goodness. Best book I've ever read. I would say um, probably the best one. Can I do two or only you may one? Do, you is may do really... two. They can be a tie. <laughs> a photo okay, finish. Okay, they can be a tie. Um, one of them that really helped me wrestle with faith and suffering is a book by Timothy Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It really helped me wrestle with some of the bigger, meatier questions about meaning and what happens right. after death and how God can exist with suffering. That was very, very helpful for me in a critical time. Um, but the one that probably was the most transformational for me was a tiny little book that was written by a gentleman by the name of Henry Nowen mm. called The Inner Voice of Love. And that book was actually his journal through uh, a, the darkest season of his life, his journal. And so it was really very raw and very open about his questions and doubts and his struggle to have the will to live. And it was like a companion. Yeah. It was like I had this friend sitting with me and that, that was the other one. Inner Voice of Love by Henry Nowen. So I have four kids, and the third is named Henry after Henry Nowen. Uh, oh, the, the Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. I don't think it's the real Rembrandt, yes. but the one, the, the, a, for, yes. a forged painting is hanging in my office. Uh -huh. I love Henry Nowen, and I love the book you, you, you shared. The thing about Henry, and you mention it beautifully, he's so vulnerable that you feel bad for him. You're like, this poor guy yeah. better stop complaining. <laughs> and and as you're saying that, you turn the page and you're like, I wonder what my friend will say next because I'm with yes. him. I get it. And Henry Nowen, for yep. those of you who have not read him, ooh, check him out. He, he's he's oh, worthwhile. So good. So good. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh. Um, I was... I was very playful. I, I'm very creative. I would sit and just draw. I was never a girl to play with dolls. I was a girl to draw pictures. And so I would sit and just create and imagine, you know, full of imagination and play, that innocence of imagination. And there is some, I have lost some of that innocence after going through so much pain and suffering, mm. some of that natural playfulness. And I miss that. And so actually that's part of my goal for this year and next year. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rediscover play and joy and laughter uh, and not to be quite so intense and serious all the time. <laughs> awesome. Michelle, if your home caught fire and all living things and people are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what would you grab? Oh, now you're going to make me cry. I know what I would grab. Um, uh, <laughs> and at the risk of sounding very churchy, it would be my Bible because I used my Bible as a journal through the darkest days of my life. And I wrote all the ugly, hard questions in there, the ones that you think God is going to send down lightning and, and spite you. And I wrote them down in there and it became part of my journey. It's my story. And so I would grab that Bible because it's, it's evidence of the grace that got me through. That's awesome. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who do you want to be seated right there on that bench with you? Man, you're going to make me cry again. You didn't warn me about this, John. <laughs> um, it would be a toss-up between Henry Nowen, again, because I would just love to pick his brain on 
all that he experienced. But the other one would probably be my dad. My dad died of um, terminal pancreatic cancer in between my second and third diagnosis. He, He died eight weeks before my third diagnosis. And I would love... Um, he had a history of severe childhood abuse and trauma, and he came to space, and then he had pancreatic cancer. But now, on the other side of humanity, I would just love to hear him share um, how all the different pieces and parts of his hard life have come together. Mm, well, I'm speaking to one of them right now, so um, <laughs> he's got a lot to brag about. What What is the best advice you. that your dad or anyone else that you respect has ever given you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, I'll give you the most recent advice uh, because it's the one that's most radically changed my life recently. Uh, but I mentioned it earlier. It was, um, I went in to see my counselor and I was so frustrated with myself because I had allowed some of my emotional triggers to get the best of me one day, some of my PTSD and emotional triggers. And I was so frustrated because I had, I failed again. I had done it wrong again. And she looked at me and she shook her head and she goes, I don't see that the same as you. She said, you're not failing, you're learning. Mm. And that has been so big for me lately, not just for how I talk to myself, but also how I approach all six of my children, the adults as well as the kids to teach them now, not when they're 47, um, that they're going to make mistakes, but they're not failing, they're learning. I'm writing it down right now. What what, it, <laughs> what would you tell your 20-year-old self, Michelle? 20-year-old self? I would say, sister, uh, you're in for a long road. It's, it's going to be harder <laughs> than you can possibly imagine. It's going to take you to a point where you're not sure you're going to want to live. But I promise you, if you hang in there, if you hang out in there and you keep making the choice to wake up and live, you will be so glad you did. Gosh, I hope that a whole lot of people listening right now hear those words, not only for you talking to yourself, you know, 27 years ago, but for them hearing those words for the first time today, that uh, if we hang in there, we will be so glad we did. I had a two, two friends just decide to no longer hang in there. And um, I, for me, that ability we have to overcome and to rise above and to recognize that a, a new day mm-hmm. is coming and we got to hang in there, sister or brother. Yeah. I, I think we all need to hear those words. We all need to hear those words. And we need to we need to be able to be there for each other when we hit those moments where we don't think we can do it anymore. Right. We need to be able to reach out and say, I need help. And to know that we can count on each other stepping in and say, okay, you don't have to do this alone today. I'm doing it with you. Michelle Kushat, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Oh my goodness. My one sentence. She never stopped believing that love would win. <laughs> I think that's what I would say. Not just love for each other, but the fact that there really, I do believe that there is a God and that, um, and that we don't even have any idea how great his love is for us and that she never stopped believing that love would win in the end. And it did. Michelle, it has been a pleasure and an honor spending some time with you today, hearing about your story, your struggle, 
how you came undone, how you came back from it, and how you are not failing, you are learning, and in the end, love wins. It's been a it's been an love awesome wins. journey together. I agree. It's been an honor, John. Thanks so much for making space for this conversation today. My friends, that is Michelle Cushat. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Thank you for listening to another Live Inspired podcast, and thank you for helping make this podcast what it is. Week after week after week, we continue to grow and touch more lives, and that is because of you. I want to thank you for sharing this through social media. I want to thank you for subscribing to the podcast. If you've never subscribed, wow, now's a good chance to do exactly that. So subscribe right now. It's as easy as clicking a button. If you've never offered feedback or commented on it, What a great chance right now. It's a great way to get the numbers to elevate even farther so we can touch even more lives through your help. So subscribe and share and comment. And together, we can make a huge difference. My friends, my name is John O'Leary. This is the end of this podcast, but this is the beginning of the best of the rest of your lives. So this is your day, servants. Live inspired.